Hello, and welcome to the Objective Health Show. I am your host today, Erica, and joining me in the studio is Elliot, Doug, and Damien. Hello. Hello. Hi. So today, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the brain and the mind, and is your mind confined to your brain? And uh, should be interesting, you know, uh, it is health and wellness related because we are all walking around trying to use our mind <laughs> in productive ways. But uh, what stimulated this discussion behind the scenes was actually an article that came out in 2016, and it uh, was called Scientists Say Your Mind Isn't Confirmed to Your Brain or Even in Your Body. And this was in the online news source, The Conversation. And basically, it's asking, you know, is your mind part of your body or does it extend beyond that? And scientists have been wrestling with this, particularly neuroscientists. But uh, the question is asked, what is the mind? And basically, there, the statement was the mind is the seat of consciousness, the ens essence of your being. Without a mind, you cannot be considered meaningfully alive. So what exactly and where precisely is it? Isn't that a great question? <laughs> but um, it goes on to say that our mind cannot be confined to what's inside our skull or even in our body. And a definition was created by a man named Dan Siegel, and he's a professor of psychiatry at uh, UCLA School of Medicine, and he wrote a book called Mind, A Journey to the Heart of the Human Being. And um, in his definition, he made the comment that um, uh, our mind extends beyond our physical selves and that it's impossible to completely disentangle our subjective view of the world from our inner reactions. And so, what do you all think? Like, uh, you think this uh, definition clearly stated or kind of created more ambiguity? You know, we all have people that are very materialistic minded, more that are subjective. Um, is it confined to your brain? Is it just something that sits in your head and, you know, we're automatons? Or is there is there this uh, extended theory of mind well i've never really bought the whole materialistic view of the whole thing that basically your brain is just a big microprocessor and um consciousness is kind of a byproduct of this machine more or less um that never really rang true to me and i think there's i think there's a lot of things that 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 kind of um model can't answer for um one thing in particular actually was uh there was an article um it was called uh it was from the scientific american uh blog uh and it was called misreporting and confirmation bias in psychedelic research and it was a really interesting article because the 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 author's talking about how their studies that have been done on psychedelic research have found that despite the fact that people are having these kind of very expansive sort of experiences, um, even kind of seemingly having access to knowledge that they wouldn't necessarily have in a sober state, um, despite this fact, the brain is actually less active in that state than it is in the normal waking state. 
And what they expected to find, you know, was something similar to dreams, where the brain is actually still quite active during the dream state. And but they didn't find that. Um, so it's kind of like, well, if there's if, if people are having these kinds of experiences, where is that actually taking place if the brain is actually less active in that state? And they found very similar things for, um, you know, near death experiences or um, even actual death experiences where people die and then come back. You know, people have been brain dead and they come back reporting all kinds of different um, experiences that they had out of body experiences. Um, there's cortical deactivation through the use of um, magnetic fields um, in mystical experiences as well, like uh, meditation and things like that. They're, they're finding in, in many of these um, states that people actually have less activity going on in their brain than what you would expect. You would expect if you're having a, a kind of a mind-blowing, <laughs> mind-blowing experience <laughs> that you would um, see a lot of brain activity you know, more than what you would normally see. But it's actually the opposite. So that kind of says to me, like what, what seems to be hinted at there is that you are kind of in a state where you're kind of more connected to your mind than you are to your brain in those states. Now, obviously, a lot more research has to be done on that. And it can, we could speculate a lot. But um, what we can say is that this is not what you would expect if that mechanistic model were true. Well, and Siegel was saying that uh, the mind meets the mathematical definition of a complex system in that it's open so you can influence things left outside itself and chaos capable, which simply means it's roughly randomly distri distributed and nonlinear, which means a small in input leads to large and is difficult to predict the result. So with these complex uh, systems uh, are self-organizing, the idea is uh, the foundation of mental health. So um, I found that really interesting because he said, you know, again, borrowing from the mathematics, optimal self-organization is flexible, adaptive, coherent, energized, and stable. This means that without optimal self-organization, you arrive at either chaos or rigidity. And, um, and he believes that that fits the range of uh, symptoms of mental health disorders. So this idea of, um, you know, self-organizing as opposed to complete and utter chaos. Or rigidity, mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of like if it wasn't a self-organizing complex system, then we literally would be robots. You know, it's, it, and, and I like to think that we're a little bit more than that. Um, you know, if you talk to the materialists, they would argue that, no, we're not. We're just very complex machines. Um, but I think that, well, I would argue against that. I don't think that that's actually the case. Yeah, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> now we're working on, um, you know, integrating and, and, and becoming adaptive and flexible and energized and stable. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, we live in such a chaotic state of the world that that can influence us and it can it can take a toll on mental health for sure and um one last thing is uh, siegel was saying that he actually wrote this book because he sees so much misery in society and essentially um there's 
people need to integrate more. They need to, um, you know, not isolate, not, not uh, pull themselves away, but actually learn through lessons with other people uh, of being more cohesive, if, if I'm making sense. I don't know, maybe my mind is not <laughs> 100%, but it, it, I, I can kind of see where he was going. Like he felt that this was something that really needed to be shared with the wider public that uh, the, you know, the mental health of people can, can be very much affected by what's happening in society, in your, in your community, in your groups, you know, and, and how to um, attribute happiness to a sense of belonging, to a sense of sharing. And I don't know, what do you guys think? Yeah. Well, it's mm -hmm. interesting, you know, I think, when you think about like kind of the history of thought, the way we've kind of thought about things in the past, you know, it was always kind of intuited that there was a dualistic, um, a dualism going on, essentially, that there was the, the body, but there was also the mind, soul, that sort of thing, like that there were these two kind of separate things. But it seems like kind of more modern thought kind of got away from that with the whole reductionist kind of like, let's boil everything down to its individual parts to learn about it, things became much more mechanistic. And that idea was kind of brushed aside as being just superstitious, that we had figured out all these different things, you know, and we're nothing really except a bunch of neurochemicals and um, firing neurons. And that's it. That's all that there is to it. But it's kind of interesting that we got away from that when it seemed like that was what people intuited anyway. You know, it's kind of like without having dissected any brains or anything like that or had any microscopes to look through, they were kind of like, well, it seems pretty obvious that there is kind of this animating force to life um, that isn't just a bunch of, you know, that we're not just machines, you know, these powered machines. And when we die, it's like the power dies, like the batteries died. And then uh, and then that's it. You know, we had this intuitive sense that there was more to it than that, that there was this kind of, like I said, animating force or something that something else um there and that the 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 mind was not the same as the body or the brain those sorts of things so i just find it interesting that we we kind of seem to have intuited this a long time ago and then lost it through our intense uh reduction reductionistic um approach to everything Most definitely. I mean, you know, if you look at Eastern and Western spiritual traditions, not to go off on a tangent, but just to kind of put some perspective, you know, we've always, um, our ideas about our separate selves as physical bodies are kind of misrepresentations. I mean, mm. you know, you think of something like the power of prayer or the idea of distant healing that, that I could think positive thoughts for my co-hosts um, come, you know, and that, that, that could actually happen for you that th this, and we did do a show in the past about the power of prayer, mm. but the, the fact that your mind could be so strong and have the ability to affect you folks as my co-hosts, you know, whether it's sending good thoughts. And we all have uh, had experiences of thinking of someone and then they call you or they write you a letter. And, and so I, I really think that it's so fascinating that we are not confined just to our mind, that there's so much potential and, um, you know, kind of in the 
I hate to say new age movement, but we've maybe you folks have heard that, you know, where the thoughts go, the energy flows kind of thing. And if you're constantly ruminating on negative thoughts that you can actually make yourself physically ill and uh, all these things, you know, are now being backed up by research and science. And it's actually coming to be the point that, you know, there, there is studies that show distant prayer, healing prayer works or, you know, things like that. So it's really fascinating, fascinating stuff, a little uh, mind blowing sometimes too, (laughs) you know, to consider the implications of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, like you guys have said, this stuff is, it was very much taken for granted, I think in the past, or it was, it was a known thing or it was a considered thing, especially when, um, I mean, this idea that humans are merely physical machines is, is a relatively new one, right? It's a relatively new one. And, and, um, the way that these in at least some of these, um, articles, the way that they're described, is it physical re- reductive physicalists? I think that's the word reductive physicalists stemming from the, uh, yeah, essentially reductionism, which is um, which grew very much out of out of um, scientific thought, but ultimately, what many of the original scientists or pioneers in science, their aims were to um, unite science and religion. Using science was a path towards understanding the divine and and also trying to uh, trying to to discover. Um, the things which human beings intuitively kind of felt to be true, but had no physical evidence for. Mm-hmm. Um, but somewhere along the, the way, um, it changed and it kind of became corrupted. And this idea that humans are merely physical with the, um, with the discovery of DNA and, and all of these other steps in science, this idea that human beings are merely physical machines, that we are essentially automatons, right? Um, yeah, this, this took a foothold. And so any scientists who seek to question this, they seek to kind of uh, ask the questions that go unanswered. They're very much in, in many cases, they are ostracized. Uh, mm-hmm. If you look at, for instance, Rupert Sheldrake, yeah, who yeah. did a lot of work on the fundamental problems with uh, scientific reductionism, essentially. Um, and who, came up with several theories. One of those was, was based on this idea. I can't remember what he called it. Essentially this concept of this information field and how human beings in some respects are connected to this, have some kind of connection and how this um, guides our experience, how this affects our experience. And this is one of the ways that one of the things that could help to explain psi phenomena, potentially this information field concept. Um, And if you look at the evidence this, this idea, so this reductionist idea that human beings are merely a collection of brain cells and that our experience or our perception is merely generated action potentials, so the flow of electrons and protons through our nervous system, and this kind of generates a, a visual image, and this is our experience. It's not really fully in line with, with the evidence, right? There is evidence, for instance, there was a case of an individual who... Um, <laughs> I mean, what was his name? I can't, 
can't see what his name was. I think he was in France. Yeah, 44-year-old Frenchman who went to the hospital complaining of mild weakness in his left leg. It was discovered then, basically he had a scan. It was discovered that his skull was filled largely by fluid, leaving just a thin perimeter or perimeter of actual brain tissue. And yet the man was a married father of two and a civil servant with an IQ of 75, slightly below his uh, below average in his intelligence, but he was not mentally disabled. So this kind of flows, flies in the face of the idea that human beings are, um, are fundamentally a collection or, or their, um, our brain activity or our mind, what we experience as our mind is merely the, um, the result of, of our brain. Of, a, of what of the chemical reactions that's going on in our brain. It seems that this individual basically had no brain. He had no brain, yet his experience was very similar to the rest of people. And so what that kind of makes us question, or we should be questioning, is, okay, if this individual could get, get by quite happily in his life, yet he had no brain, then what is the role of the brain? Okay, we can look at all the neuroscience and neurochemistry and things, but ultimately to ascribe um, human experience to brain chemical reactions, it's not consistent with with this guy's experience, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that thing, that whole thing was fascinating, you know, and it's funny, too, because that article, which was um, on Quartz, uh, quartz Quartz.com, the author of that article basically goes into a physicalist interpretation of what was going on there. It says, oh, yeah, you know, the brain, um, if there are parts missing from the brain, other parts of the brain can kind of uh, make up for that. But it's really stretching the limits there, you know. I mean, that guy had what, like a thin layer of brain tissue, essentially, instead of having the entire brain. And for all intents and purposes, wasn't really affected that negatively from it. Like, he wasn't the smartest guy in the world. A 75 IQ is not not particularly uh, high, but he was totally functional in society. I mean, he was a civil servant. He wasn't like, uh, you know, he wasn't mentally disabled, I guess is the point. So it's like that really stretches the limits of how good is the brain at kind of um, making up for missing parts. You know, uh, obviously there is much more going on here. Um, but anyway, I, it was a, it's, it's a really fascinating case. Mind blowing. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just keep on using those that term. I know. All those different <laughs> terms. Well, another thing that kind of plays into all this too is the uh, the role of the vagus nerve. And so um, there was an article that we looked at from the conversation back in 2017 called From Decapitation to Positive Psychology, How the Vagus Nerve Connects Body, Brain, and Mind. And um, they were talking about that dualist assumption. So you guys were talking about that physical, the, what is it they call it, physicalism. And um, then there's the con- contrasting position of dualism, the dualist assumption that the physical and the mental are fundamentally different substrates. And then what the, um, 
the role that the vagus nerve plays in that. So just a little bit of background for those that may not know, the vagus nerve is the 10th cranial nerve, is that correct? And it connects to all the internal organs and whatnot. But what's really interesting about the vagus nerve is that it regulates vagal tone. And so if you have a low vagal tone, um, you know, you you tend to be not as inner reaction I don't know how I'm trying to say this. Basically, higher vagal tone, more connectedness, more um, ability to kind of uh, regulate your emotions, your social engagement, your cognitive function. So I always like to think solution oriented. So how can we kind of wrestle with this discussion of the mind and the brain? And it seems like there's been so much work in the importance of stimulating the vagus nerve. And um, some of the things that do that are breathing exercises like the EE program or Aero Wallace, uh, yoga, meditation. I would even say martial arts, exercise, all of these things help with your breathing, regulate vagal tone and essentially help regulate emotions encourage social engagement and actually stimulate cognitive function. And they've shown studies that it affects the gray matter, uh, practicing that vagus stimulation affects the gray matter in your brain. It can improve memory. Um, So there's so much there. And I think this is actually a solution for a lot of people who may be struggling with issues of depression or social isolation um, is to find how this role of the vagus nerve um, plays such an important role in brain cognition as a whole. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting because um, what it seems like philosophers are kind of going towards, excuse me, lately um, is the idea that the mind is not only just not confined to the brain, but it's not even just confined to our bodies. You know, Um, I mean, there are, arguments for like the mind being kind of a whole body system, right? Like that we've got nerve cells all over our body, particularly in the gut. Um, But it actually, there's this idea that the mind is actually not just confined to you, like yourself, your individual unit, but that the mind is actually how you are relating to the environment around you as well. You know, so that Mm -hmm. definitely includes social engagement. It's kind of like when we're in a when we're in a discussion or um, uh, sharing in some way, uh, that is kind of the mind. Like your mind cannot be separated from the conversation that you're kind of engaged in. So that you're, it's it kind of like it's an expansive um, thing where you're you're kind of your mind is now how you're relating to whatever you happen to be relating to. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense. I, I thought I had a grasp of this before I started talking about it when I was reading it, but it, it is kind of confusing, but it, I, I find it to be a really fascinating idea. The same kind of idea that, um, you know, if you're reading a book, essentially like your mind is not confined to just what's going on in your brain as you're reading that book, but you are interacting with those thoughts that are coming from the book, right? So in a sense that you're kind of interact, interacting with that author in a certain way, um, but that actually encompasses the mind encompasses that whole thing. Um, yeah. 
I agree. I think awareness has a lot to do with it too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like you're saying, so you're, you're interacting with someone and you're actually aware in attention of the exchange going on. And so, um, you're aware of the environment around you, you're reading non-social cues. And I think, especially in our modern age, our awareness can be very kind of tamped down, dumbed down. I do Mm -hmm. think like technology can have a really negative effect, especially since people attention spans is getting shorter and shorter by the day. But, um, you know, like you were saying, the philosophers, I, I, a while ago read this great book called the heart of the mind by russell targ and uh he worked on a lot of psi research uh he's kind of famous for the whole remote viewing thing mm-hmm. but he had a very interesting quote that i wanted to read because it it really summed up a lot of what we're talking about today he was saying that we're not simply a physical body um our awareness is not local it's able to expand and move through space and time who we are really is non-local awareness uh residing for a time in a physical body mystics have said this since the beginning of metaphysical writings we have a body but our essence is non-local and i I thought that was pretty uh interesting because it you know as a yoga teacher i work with teaching people how to breathe, how to practice postures, how to do meditation. And um, so much of the preparation for that is people actually getting out of their physical body and not being so attached and um, being open to expanding their awareness, breath awareness, conscious awareness, uh, body awareness. But it's it's kind of like this process and um, it's a struggle for sure. It's definitely not easy. Anybody who's attempted to meditate knows the endless chatter of the monkey mind can be very distracting. So, um, you know, as you were saying, Doug, like mystics have shared this knowledge. It's out there, but it can be taken as not serious, you know, but I think there's something very serious about it. I think it's it's uh, one of many things to kind of build on. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you mentioned remote viewing too, because some of those experiments right there are kind of good evidence that the mind is not confined to the brain because mm-hmm. some of the stuff, when you, when you look into that kind of stuff and the, the experiments that are done and the, the amazing results that they're getting with some of this stuff, it's really well, mind blowing just to use the, <laughs> the term again. It's just, it, it's like, if these people can do that, then there's obviously more going on than just um, neurons firing. Exactly. What do you think, Elliot? Yeah, I agree. (laughs) (laughs) It's mind-blowing stuff. (laughs) Well, I do have another quote. So for our listeners, um, I have a quote from Patanjali. He actually wrote, yoga sutras many thousands of years ago is kind of a a basis of this idea of gaining control of your awareness and actually being able to have um, some sort of control on focusing. And so 
he basically taught that with the diligent practice of meditation or stabilizing stabilization of one's focused attention comes expanded awareness. And he taught that a cultivated mind can know the past and the future, understand the sounds made by all creatures, read what others are thinking, perceive the small, distant and concealed, understand the interior of the body, achieve perfection of the body and a variety of, of other astounding abilities. And, and I'm not saying I'm a supporter of all those theories, but I think they're possible for sure. Um, kind of like what you were saying, Doug, about remote viewing, you know? So if you can start to practice whatever it is, a meditation that you can kind of quiet that internal chatter, that you can sit in silence, that you may be open to that informational theory or field. And actually, you know, I, I hate to say like receive messages because then it might sound like you're hearing voices, but um, that you're, that you can basically quiet that constant chatter that uh, ego generated stuff and be open to a lot more information, you know, divine insight, uh, visions, uh, things like that. What do you guys think? Am I totally out there? <laughs> well, I mean, I'd, I'd like to believe that that's true. I've never had any experience of it myself, so it's always hard to, to say, but I mean, you mm -hmm. do hear from people who do have those sorts of experiences. I'd, I'd like to think that it was, that it was possible. Well, and one thing he was, uh, Russell Targ was saying back to what you were talking about with remote viewing is that when they teach people how to do it, it's actually not this big active process of all these steps you follow. It's actually learning how to quiet the mind and just be open to images or thoughts or possibilities that that arise instead of saying, well, I want to see what that guy's doing in the other room. You know, you just are able to quiet your mind enough to, you know, have flashes of inspiration, um, you know, whatever it is. And, and, and I think that is contemplation, you know, those moments before you get out of bed in the morning, before you go to bed at night, like where you're, you're, you're laying down, you're actually quiet. You don't have all the visual and audio stimulation, hopefully, right. You're, you've turned off all your devices and you have those flashes of insight or, um, ideas, creative ideas. And, um, or you think about people or, and then they call you the next day. Again, those, those kinds of things, like just being open like that to the possibilities that you are not just confined to this physical, well, Tiffany would call it the body bag, right? <laughs> <laughs> the right. sack. The meat sack. <laughs> the meat sack. So... Yeah, I know this is uh, kind of straying into those uh, more philosophical uh, realms, but, you know, I do think it's important uh, for all of our mental health in this time that we live in to um, really start considering these things, to consider how affected we are by our environment around us and how we are in control in a sense of, of limiting you know, stimuli that may not be for the best of our mental well-being or health, you know? Mm -hmm. so, Definitely. I do feel like the, the mind is uh, boggled. 
But um, if you if you all don't have anything else to share, we just wanted to put that out there today. You're uh, you're more than just your brain cells firing. You have limitless potential, and uh, you know find find a way to stimulate your vagus nerve to start to tap into some of those um, positive effects. You know of getting past rigidity and you know being able to deal with the chaos, whether it's in your life in your community in your country in your you know the world like have a strategy where you don't become so confined to just your mental state and that endless chatter that it, it can do and and sometimes not for the best you know so that's what that's what we're hoping to get across at least yeah. for myself <laughs> well put so thank you all for joining us um we hope you like and subscribe to our show and we will be back next week with another interesting, stimulating topic. Thanks Bye, guys. Bye. <laughs> Bye.